Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 31st, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. It's Halloween, and what can be more unnerving than the nonfiction we're going to serve up today? We'll be talking about the Extreme Heat and Your Health report that's issued out recently by the Natural Resources Defense Council. My guest for this entire podcast is Dr. Kim Knowlton, Senior Scientist and Deputy Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council Science Center. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Last week, the Natural Resources Defense Council rolled out their report explaining the huge number of Americans are suffering through the toll of extreme heat days. A major contributor is my first guest, Dr. Kim Knowlton, Senior Scientist and Deputy Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council Science Center. She focuses on the public health impacts of climate change and advocates for strategies to prepare for and prevent these impacts, especially in vulnerable communities. As a result of her research into the links between climate change and health, NRDC has partnered with a number of city and state governments to strengthen health preparedness in their climate adaptation plans. I hope we can get to some of those locally here. She has also studied heat and ozone-related mortality and illness, as well as the connections among climate change, infectious illnesses, flooding, Aero allergens and respiratory ailments such as allergies and asthma. Dr. Knowlton was among the researchers who participated in the third U.S. National Climate Assessment Report and the New York City Panel on Climate Change. She completed her bachelor's degree at Cornell University, her master's in environmental and occupational health sciences from Hunter College, and her doctorate in public health from Columbia University, where she now serves as an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences. She comes to us today from New York City to talk about the latest NRDC report. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Knowlton. Thank you, Claudia. I'm so glad to be here talking with you. Well, it's it's a pleasure, but on Halloween, this is go- if nothing scared us yet, this these findings certainly do the trick. It's historical. It's huge. The news about the reach of extreme heat affecting nearly 210 million Americans. That's two-thirds of the population. One week later, actually, I heard Dr. Knowlton on this morning's morning edition on NPR covering this, but featuring you, as I was saying, how's the coverage been from your standpoint since the rollout of this report one week ago? Well, from my point of view, we've gotten some pretty tremendous coverage because we've used the map analysis of extreme heat days to make this global climate change phenomena a more local issue and show how it affects people's health right in their backyards, which I think is something that we all know from recent experience, the immediacy of extreme heat, but this map gives us a better sense of the degree to which the present is just not like the summers of the past. 
And I just want to mention, I also heard this morning the uh, alarming analysis that the world in is one third only of the way of meeting its 2030 greenhouse gas reduction goals. So it, there's such pressing business in meeting this. And, and I'm thinking between what the James Hansen's published report in the New York Times uh, last July and the graphic presented in his graphic that's rather drastic and the graphic that Michael Mann's hockey stick, it's time for as much media traction as we can get when, when so much is blowing up from day to day. I would agree with you, Claudia. I think that the, the extreme heat map that NRDC just released really highlights why it's a bad idea for the United States to pull back from climate action. I mean, we really need to defend and protect our health. And plans and proposals like the Clean Power Plan need to be protected. Climate change is very much a matter of our health. Yours and mine today, our children's today, and for sure into the future generations to come. Well, so e- there's a lot that we can do yes. to protect health right now. Even though last week in Southern California was a clear example, Dr. Knowlton, would you define for us what an extreme heat day is, including the matters of severity, frequency, and duration? Sure, Claudia. I'm happy to. So that really gets to the question of how did NRDC make this extreme map? We did it in two steps. First, we looked at weather station uh, data from over 3,300 weather stations across the U.S. using government-collected data, and we calculated at each one of those stations the temperatures from the past that locally qualified as extreme because they only happened on the hottest 10% of summer days. So we looked at every locality where those weather stations are and looked at the, you know, the local sort of experience of extreme heat. Yes. We took those 10% hottest temperatures from summer days in 1961 to 1990, and then we calculated the number of days in a more recent decade, sort of like the present, the most current data that's available, and that's from 2007 to 2016. And we looked at the number of summer days now that exceed what used to be the hottest days from the past. And that's when we were kind of surprised to realize, as the analysis shows, and as you said, that two-thirds of the American public lives in areas with more than nine of those extreme heat days. Nine of those days is what you'd expect in times past, but that's what we mean when we say the present is just not like the past. There's more than nine days in most of the country. And so along with this thermodynamic feature, there's the confounding factors that you talk about in the report. Ozone layers intensifying and prolonged pollen production seasons. All that is working against public health. Yep. You bring up some really important issues. And I'm a health scientist who has specialized for over a decade in how climate change affects people's health. You're right. It's not just the extreme heat. It's unfortunately air pollution and those two kinds you mentioned, ground-level ozone, which is the bad ozone because it's a major component of smog, which is really damaging to respiratory health, especially for people with asthma or respiratory illness. But for all of us, we're all susceptible to a high bad ozone day. And extreme heat and higher temperatures increase the rate of production of that ground-level ozone. So that's the climate link. Hotter days contribute to higher ozone concentrations, a double whammy in a bad way for our health. The other piece of air quality that you mentioned 
is airborne pollens from all kinds of plants, trees, grasses, and this time of year, it's ragweed, the plant whose pollen more people are allergic to than all other plants combined. The more carbon dioxide we chug out into the atmosphere as we burn fossil fuels, and the higher temperatures are, the more of that pollen is produced. So in a way, that's, you know, the triple whammy to health that climate change is contributing to. It's contributing to more CO2, higher temperatures, and that harms health directly because of heat and then those two types of air pollution. So uh, there's a lot of links to our health, and we stand to gain a lot by reducing those sources of heat-trapping carbon pollution. And in the NRDC rollout of the report last week, Dr. Adu, very reputable pediatrician, her information is quite dated. It's five to six years old, and yours is from the latest installments, the 27... 2007 to 2016 interval. Mm -hmm. How do you think the newest data that is coming out since it looks like we're on record with 2017 temperatures, how, what are you anticipating as you see the it's getting too darn hot? Mm -hmm. Well, unless we take steps, decisive steps to reduce those sources of heat trapping carbon pollution nationally, the temperatures are projected to rise and rise quite significantly. In California, an example, temperatures have already climbed about 2 degrees Fahrenheit since the early 1900s. But if we continue producing, you know, high amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, carbon pollution, that's projected to go up to 9 degrees Fahrenheit on average by the end of the century. So think about that. That's, you know, over four times as rapid a change in temperature. So it really makes a difference what we do now in terms of energy policy. And in a way, that's a huge opportunity to do the right thing. And speaking of opportunity, the geek in me last week when I was watching that first pitch, I, I wasn't watching, I was anticipating that. At the first pitch we all knew at the Dodger Stadium was going to be a record World Series temperature of 103 degrees. I thought it would have been essential for some connections to be made to climate change at that first pitch. You've been soldiering on for many years. What would have been the best way to yell fire in that theater? Well, your question about what will it take to continue to connect the dots between climate change and human health and to kind of put on the brakes on this really rather alarming trend. I think it just takes more of what we're doing right now, looking at the evidence, the immense body of scientific evidence, which is increasing by leaps and bounds, that is connecting what's happening now in the environment and what it means to our health to climate change. It takes people like you and me doing more of our work. And frankly, I think that the experience of the past decade has brought climate change home to so many people in the U.S. and beyond. Between the heat, the drought, the wildfires, the coastal storms that lead to flooding, people's lives are absolutely upended. People's health, their you know prosperity, their livelihoods, their mental health is suffering. And I think it's time that people are saying, no more. This has to change. Health protection is important. It's top-notch, and that means climate protections are also top priority. Well, I noticed an anecdotal point at the California 
GOP convention in Anaheim a week and a couple of days ago that the Citizens and Climate Lobby folks that were tabling their, their organization, that they said they've never seen such a, they've never gotten this much attention as they have this year uh, from recent years. So that's, I guess, that's one marker. My guest, if you, for those of you just joined us, is Kim Knowlton, Senior Scientist and Deputy Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council Science Center, focusing on public health impacts of climate change involved with developing ways of preventing these impacts. Impacts, and we're talking about the National, the Natural Resource Defense Council's recently issued extreme heat report and the interactive map of all the counties across the U.S. And I, I thought it was really important that there was a good discussion about anomalies. There are some interesting questions coming up. There's even hotter pockets than your generalization of county to county mapping, correct? There are definitely parts of the country, like if you want to call them microclimates, and the world that are hotter than, you know, it's not a same temperature increase everywhere by any means. There's changes in, you know, the topography, the landscape, weather patterns, and I'm not a climate scientist, so I can't speak to a lot of those. I'm a health scientist, so I can say that the health data that we need to connect those dots between environmental change and health outcomes, health change, in many places is sort of at this point, it's at the county level. That's the sort of finest distinctions that we can make, or it's challenging to go to a city level or a community or a neighborhood level and look at health effects. That's why relationships and sort of the input, the impetus from the people who are really on the front lines of climate change is so important to get work going, to motivate, you know, what are the questions that are the top priority to be asking now. So partnerships with people on the front lines is entirely important. And as you say in your report that the extreme heat deaths far exceeds any other weather-related disasters, and I guess that even includes the recent hurricanes? Well, it does. Uh, The statistics that the National Weather Service keeps as of last year, 2016, on a 30-year average heat, extreme heat was still the leading cause of weather-related fatalities, even more so than tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, lightning on a 30-year average. So, yeah, in the long run, it's caused more weather-related deaths than any other type of extreme weather. So let's break down who the vulnerable populations are. That is, there's vulnerable workers that are exposed in their outdoor working conditions. There's the mm-hmm. infants, the one to 12-month-old infants. And there were, uh, as Dr. Duke mentioned, there were the recently arrived to the football playing, the youngest players in the football games practices, the 15-year-olds, and then senior citizens that are isolated. Mm-hmm. I want to have you talk about how you are approaching some data about what you're seeing in those vulnerable populations with extreme heat. Mm -hmm. Well, you've just listed some of the key groups of people who are especially vulnerable to extreme heat. It's people who are age 65 and older in part because some of the major organ systems for any of us that are challenged when it's extremely hot are the heart, the lung, the kidneys, and part of that is they're really involved in thermal regulation and the body trying to keep a comfortable internal temperature so that all those organ systems work well. When it gets really hot, people breathe more rapidly, the heart beats faster, there's more perspiration, and that affects sort of the fluid balance or imbalance of the body, which involves the kidneys. So people who have pre-existing illnesses in any of those systems tend to be more at risk. As we get older, 
we tend to, you know, sort of have more of those conditions. Yes. So that's part of why vulnerability is there. The youngsters, the children 12 months and under, in part, and even some of our younger, you know, toddlers, because they spend more time outdoors, the toddlers do. They play. They need supervision to know when it's time to take a drink or rest or use the shade. Infants are also, their bodies are sort of becoming kind of striking a balance in terms of thermoregulation. So children are really among the most vulnerable. And people, you know, households, communities, and then whole countries who are economically disadvantaged often don't have the means anyway to get out of harm's way, to have alternative transportation or means of, you know, sustenance or places to live. And when there's a drought, a famine, a storm, wildfire, they're more challenged about where to go that's safe. It's harder to have a working air conditioner and operate it. That can be, you know, a real, can be really tough for a lot of people. So there's many millions of us in the U.S. and the world who are really vulnerable to climate change, and we need to kind of honor that and make a commitment to become better prepared. Dr. Knowlton, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the IC change, their Harlem project that they completed in 2016. It was a real model in how to intervene with providing potentially isolated seniors, the most one of the vulnerable groups that we're talking about, is mm-hmm. intervening to get them to a cooling center, to making sure if they have air conditioning, they switch it on because that is... A, and various reports, even a few, just a little bit of cooling, t- turning on the AC for just a little bit is a is a good measure. So are you familiar with the, the, were you involved with the Harlem Heat Project? We do know about that project, and it's a terrific one. The community partners for the Harlem Heat Project and for IC Change are We Act for Environmental Justice, which is just yes. a, a longstanding leader among climate justice and environmental justice issues in New York City and beyond. And NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, where I spend most of my time, we have a a wonderful, a rich uh, working relationship with WEACT, and we've provided some technical assistance to them when they need it on looking at some of those urban heat island issues. So it's just fantastic, the work that IC Change, Harlem Heat Project, and moreover, WEACT does in the community to increase northern Manhattan's climate resilience. And Dr. Patrick Kinney with the Environmental Health Science at Columbia University, I I imagine a colleague of yours, he talks about the need for doctors practically to prescribe air conditioning as a health benefit and all, all of these measures to help because also in that coverage from that particular project that was talking about the incidence of heat deaths, it's masked that there's maybe six times more incidences related to extreme heat deaths that, uh, than, than are actually reported and that mm-hmm. it's not, I guess, reporting is an important part that it's elusive and it would help make the case and ring the uh, alarm a little bit more resoundingly for people to, to find the need to act. It's true. It, it's quite typical that heat-related deaths are underreported and by a large degree. There's heat stroke, which is the, uh, kind of the easiest to diagnose cause of heat-related death. Uh, it has a very high case fatality rate, um, and it's, you know, we're saddened to hear about any heat stroke death because we try and prevent heat-related illness before it progresses to heat stroke. But the thing is, there's a whole range of related conditions of people with 
those heart conditions or breathing conditions or, you know, renal conditions, kidney ailments, for whom an extreme heat day can cause their underlying illness to get much worse. And that can precipitate, unfortunately, a premature death. So for researchers to make an estimate of those heat-related deaths is a challenge that we face. But when we look at those numbers, it's almost always far more, far more than just the heat stroke deaths. So there are measures on the federal, the state, and the local level. With the time we have together remaining, I don't know if you'd like to focus mainly on the local, or shall we give a little shout-out to at least what uh, the trial balloon that Congressman Markey and Cartwright are trying on the congressional level? Would, would you like to start just briefly with the federal and would mainly speak to the, the local remediation project? Sure. Oh, yes. I, I mean, here's the thing. As you, as you point out, we can do a lot to address the public health threats from extreme heat. And there's a lot of great uh, projects and positive directions already underway. At the federal level, even though we're, we're seeing, you know, backsliding for, on federal leadership, there are uh, efforts that have been proposed, like the uh, Climate Health uh, Protection and Promotion Act that, as you mentioned, has been proposed both in the Senate and the House, that would really increase sort of the the groundwork and the funding and the support and the connection to make climate health protection and promotion something that happens nationally. It would encourage scientists to share their vast technical knowledge with states and localities and really boost local climate and health research and the response capacity of states and counties. And that's important because there's only one-third of the states in the U.S. that currently have a climate preparedness plan that's directed at health. So that's really important. But look, at the same time, at the county and city level, there's a lot of positive activity. Well, for, for one a, moment, before Dr. Knowlton, I beg yeah. your pardon, is that when we just briefly, while we talk about federal policymaking and federal funding, what concerns me is the data gaps that emerge from time to time. There, there were many during the, the Bush administration in monitoring, collecting, interpreting data, and then in 2000. 13, the sequestration of a lot of federal funds, and now with what Scott Pruitt is threatening or the OMB head uh, Mulvaney, they've got these levers to sort of turn pipelines of funding off. Mm-hmm. Does, does, it must keep you up at night that there are going to be data gaps that make it very difficult for scientists to make mm-hmm. to assess what's going on and recommend what needs to be done in what order. Well, knowledge is power, as it's long been said. Yes. And collecting data both on environmental change and human health effects from all kinds of changes is absolutely vitally important. The final decision on budgets is now in the hands of Congress, and NRDC is working with our members and our allies across the country to, to deliver a really clear message to Congress that we won't stand for cuts to health and environmental safeguards because we all rely on that. Without a healthy populace, we don't have, you know, economic power. We don't have people power. We don't have health power. We've got nothing. So it just makes sense that protection is the way. And that's why the clean power plan is like the ultimate protection, protection of our health now and our health in the future. 
So let's go. I'm not sure you mentioned about the only a third of the states have the, a climate prepare plan related mm-hmm. to public health. But let's talk about cities developing means for keeping tabs uh, yeah. on all isolated at risk populations, setting up the different climate community mm-hmm. choice, energy p- adopted plans and those kinds of things. What would do you like to focus on? Well, there's a lot of cities, as you say, that are really taking those positive steps to cope with extreme heat. What we're seeing today, which is only going to get worse in the future as climate yes. change fuels more, cities are setting up heat early warning systems. They're opening cooling centers to which people without air conditioning at home can go and cool off. There are hospital and health systems that have preparedness plans that look to the future and look at local climate projections for change and take those into account. In New York City, where where I work, there's the Million Trees program that has planted trees, many, 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 to provide more shade and, uh, you know, to cool the urban landscape. There's cooler paving and roofing materials that communities are using to just not absorb and re-radiate more heat and to diminish that urban heat island effect. Dr. Knowlton, I I just have to personally weigh in it that mm-hmm. shading is not um that that is a very significant cooling and if people mm-hmm. get out of their cars and they're they're as pedestrians are and when i'm riding my bike around i can't i'm imagining a 15 degree drop when i'm headed toward a bank of trees and then when i mm-hmm. go back to a more exposed area it's phenomenal how a tree shading functions mm-hmm. it really is the power of shade simple as it is to help cool and create those cool spaces is immense. NRDC has a project to reduce heat exposure and vulnerability in India, and their shade and providing more shade is absolutely vital. So we can do more of that, and cities are doing just that. And we need support for that at every level of government. So up up with the plaques. These trees were planted by (laughs) benevolent benefactors in those areas. And it's true that, as you point out, the things that we do right now to improve our health, to improve the well-being and the experience of, you know, living today, also will make us more climate resilient in the future, from more shade to more bike paths to more walking uh, paths and streets, city streets that are safe for people to walk through. So it's not all about cars and vehicle emissions. Better public transportation, more access to all communities. Those kind of steps make life better now and healthier now, and they will into the future, too. Did you want to uh, put any model state kind of uh, plans up for us? Well, you're talking from California, and many of your listeners will be in California. And indeed, California continues to do such great things. I mean, the state has already seen its energy use drop over 8% from 2005 to 2014, and in large part that's due to the state's efforts to increase clean energy use and make buildings and transportation more efficient. I mean, that's pretty fantastic. The state has a climate preparedness plan that does aim at some health impacts, and uh, there's a plan to assist low-income families with their cooling bills and promote tree planting in cities and improve early warning systems for heat. So California does a lot, and indeed, like every place, can do more. We can do more. There's a big move among health professionals in public health, nursing, medicine, to get involved. And there's a consortium, an international consortium of those institutions that have committed to educate the next generation of health professionals. It's called the Global 
Climate Change and Health Education Consortium. It's got over 127 members in 16 countries, and that represents over 90,000 students. That's the kind of forward-looking effort that we need more of. And so that makes me you know, quite encouraged that we're going in the right direction as that Lancet Commission report, the Lancet Countdown report that you mentioned, said today. We've reached a turning point, and the direction of travel is set. People care, and I really think we're going to demand that our health be protected and be protected now. So in closing, I just want to make sure that folks, you'll be able to see all the links for these aforementioned measures and legislative proposals. And I will also put up the NRDC.org website that the NRDC internationally collaborating everywhere. And I'm sure, Dr. Knowlton, that you would accept any kind of in-kind financial support of, to, to keep the NRDC juggernaut filling in the gaps where maybe public leadership is coming short. We invite people to join us in our, our move, our continuing uh, actions to protect our health, move toward healthier and safer communities, and to really protect ourselves from climate change and to protect the clean power plan. That's like item number one right now. It'll help us become more prepared, and I invite everyone to look at the maps at www.nrdc.org slash extreme heat because there's a lot of positive information there. We have to keep working together. No time for despair. No. It's easy to despair, but there's there's no time. It's a lost opportunity. Well, Dr. Kim Knowlton, thank you for setting aside valuable senior scientist time to be with us on Ask a Leader today. It's my pleasure, Claudia. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Kim Knowlton, as I said, is a senior scientist, and she's deputy director of the Natural Resources Defense Council Science Center. She's talking about the NRDC's recently issued Extreme Report. Her focus on public health impacts you heard today, local, state, national, and international impacts on vulnerable communities. Thank you very much. Thank you.